let's pray for God's help. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that it sheds light on our lives. And more important, it sheds light on your son. And we pray that as we uh, study it together now, uh, you would convict us, you would shape us, equip us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, let me show you where we're going with this, shall I? Um, We're going to deal with it in three ways, uh, three slices. Jesus, the heart and soul of the gospel. Repentance, secondly, the right response to to the gospel. And thirdly, salvation, the benefits of believing the gospel. Number one, Jesus, the heart and soul of the gospel, verses 22 to 36. When it comes to the very content of the gospel, it's all about Jesus, quite simply. That's the first thing to say. Uh, the reason the phrase God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is so inept as a gospel presentation in a nutshell is because that it doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. But Jesus lived. That's the first thing that, that Peter is trying to tell us. Jesus lived to display God's glory. Verse 22 tells us that uh, we are dealing with an historical person. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. Now even stopping there, we realize this is an important thing to consider. The gospel is good news concerning historical fact. Not man-made myth. I once visited a man in uh, St. Andrews who said that uh, in regards to the gospels, some first century J.K. Rowling wrote a classic. It's fabricated. But don't pretend it's real, he said. What do you think about that accusation? How would you respond to that challenge? I said to him, wow, really? You believe that? Wow, you know, anyone with even the tiniest grip on history would be able to tell you that Jesus Christ is a person who actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. You really believe that? You should look into the facts. We need to challenge those kinds of views. And others like them because people find lots of different excuses for rejecting Jesus, even in accurate documentaries on Channel 5 like this chap. But Jesus was a real person, raised in Nazareth, a real place, and God made sure the world actually would have no excuse for ignoring him, whether back then or right now, by putting him on display. Verse 22 says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. Now the word a credit in the original language means to put something on display. And God wanted the eyes of every eye in all the world to be fixed on Jesus. He showed him off. How did he do that? By miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, it says. Well, yesterday I took my family to visit Edinburgh Castle. Um, it's the first time I've ever been, to my shame. Uh, typical Scotsman, you go on a day that is free. Uh, but uh, there were lots of cool things to see. And you know you're, see, you're seeing something special when you go into these different places. And one room in particular, and the signs are up. There's no sign anywhere else. The signs are up. No photos allowed. I knew it was an important room. And then when you walk into the room, you just see this massive glass display cabinet with lots of gold shiny things in it. The Scottish crown jewels. There was one person, can't believe the gall of the girl... Maybe she couldn't read English or whatever. She just lifted up her phone. No photos, please, came the call. But you know you're looking at something special when the display cabinet is beautifully presented. It is a pretty cabinet. <laughs> but you can't take your eyes off the things that are in the cabinet because the whole, everything about the cabinet is designed to show you what's in it. 
the lighting, the velvet to accentuate the gold, everything about it tells you it's something very important. The crown jewels of Scotland on display. In the same way, God put his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on display by his miracles, his signs and wonders. They served like this cabinet, shining light, enhancing like velvet the person he claimed to be. And with every miracle, every healing, every mat carried, every white stick thrown away, every, with 5,000 stomachs full of bread and fish, with every conversion, Peter tells us, yes, he's the one. He's the one. That's God's handiwork. This power, God's power is at work to accredit Jesus. He's the one. He really lived. And he displayed God's glory. So Peter says, as he's sharing the gospel with us, Jesus lived. God was shown off his son through the astonishing life he lived. But more astonishing is the death he died. Peter says God handed him over to die. This man, verse 23, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now that is an incredible statement. It's easy to read by that. Who, who handed Jesus over to die? Well, most would say the Jews or the Romans or both. But Peter says God did it because of his set purpose and foreknowledge. Now that doesn't mean that he looked down through the corridors of time and predicted the, resurrection, uh, the rejection of his son. He didn't look ahead and say, well, surprisingly so, it looks like they're not going to love him. So I'm going to have to work in a resurrection. No, this was the outworking of a plan drawn up, as Ephesians tells us, before the foundation of the world, as the means by which God would deal with sin and show his love to a lost and rebellious world that enjoyed its defiance of him, enjoyed transgressing the boundaries he had set. But God's handing over here doesn't mean that those who killed Jesus were off the hook. Verse 23 simply highlights humanity's culpability. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Now, Peter doesn't say at this point that his death was an atoning death for our sins, but the fact that later we hear him call them to repent makes it clear that they understood that forgiveness is what is found in the name of the one they killed. And I wonder even at that, when we share the gospel, do we tell people what God has done for us by sending his son to die? Do we highlight the fact that he really lived and that he really died and there was purpose in it, that God intended it? That God handed him over because it was his plan to send Jesus in love to be the sacrifice for sin? Jesus died. Died on the cross, but Jesus didn't stay dead, of course. The great claim of true Christianity is that Christ not only died but rose again. Verse 24, God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Have you ever wondered why it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him? Jesus was, if you like, loosed from the pangs of death. He was delivered, if you like, through it. But why was it impossible for death to keep its hold on him? For us, death is impossible to avoid, but for Jesus... Well, it was impossible to stay dead. Why? Well, when you understand what the Bible says in the sweep of Scripture about what death is, it starts to make some sense. Paul tells us in Romans 5, what the Bible explains in Genesis 3, that death entered the world through sin. 
Paul tells us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Death is a penalty for sin. So what sin did Jesus commit that meant that death had some claim on him? What penalty exactly did he have to pay? Well, none of his own. No, did death have a right to hold him then? No, there was no sin on his account. That's why God raised him, to vindicate Jesus as a sinless one. And to work against these Mickey Mouse courts that were led by the wicked Jews and Romans to overturn them. God was being the heavenly judge, overruling, responding to the world's greatest injustice by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, many people in our city consider the resurrection of anyone from the dead, never mind Jesus, to be something of an impossibility. Like David Hume, for example. David Hume was a philosopher who lived and worked in Edinburgh. His statue sits proudly up in the Royal Mile. Uh, he's the one with the shiny toe on one foot. And, yeah, trust me, have a look next time you see. Some are looking confused. That was a strange thing to say for a preacher. Uh, and the, on the other foot, is his foot is resting on a book. Some would say it's the Bible. Well, he argued on the basis of probabilities that the resurrection could not have happened. But I would argue that it's not that improbable when the thing that brought death into the world, sin, was not to be found in Jesus' thoughts, words, desires, or actions at all. Resurrection is really not that improbable after all. In fact, it's to be expected. It's exactly what Peter told us. In the Old Testament, he said, it taught us again and again. He opens up like a good preacher, Psalm 16. A psalm which promises a forever king. And it was written by King David, and some thought David might be the forever king, but any notion of that was crushed whenever David well, he died. And Peter says to those who are gathered there in Jerusalem that day, listen, this talks about the king who was going to live forever. And I can tell you confidently, it's not David. You can hop, hop on the next tour bus and it will, it will take you to David's tomb. And if you were to open up that tomb and open up that casket, you know what you would find? Well, the dust of decay. Because David died and he was buried in the city. You can visit his tomb. That's not what David was talking about. David was talking about someone who was to come. He was looking forward to the resurrection of the Messiah, God's promised anointed king. He's the one we've all been looking for. And I can tell you right now, it's Jesus. Do you include the resurrection in your gospel presentations with folks? When you talk to people about Jesus, do you ever talk about the resurrection? Does it sound too weird? It's too important to miss out, let's face it. Where else do we find hope in death when it hits us every day of our lives? Where else do people hear about the sinlessness of Jesus and his vindication? Where else do we hear about the fact that tied to his resurrection from the dead is our justification, our pardoning, our forgiveness? Well, to vindicate his name, because it doesn't stop there in Peter's presentation. To vindicate his name, Jesus' name, God not only raised him from the dead, he exalted him to the highest place. Jesus reigns. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus reigns. God exalted him to the highest place. Look with me, verses 33 to 35. Peter wraps up his sermon saying... Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He's poured out his spirit and will soon have his enemies as a footstool for his feet. And once again, Peter takes a passage of the Bible, Psalm 110, 
another one of David, and said, what it says, the Lord said to my Lord, the questions are, who's, who's doing the talking here? Is this David doing the talking? Who's he talking about? Well, Peter says he couldn't possibly have meant himself. He's talking about someone sitting at the right hand of God, who is also the Lord of heaven and earth. He is, and Peter says, it's Jesus. He is Lord and Christ, as he says. He's the one who, though being a loving and kind king to all his subjects, will actually make a footstool out of those who are his enemies still, who refuse to come to him for forgiveness. Now that footstool illustration is a warning, a serious warning of judgment. Because in ancient times, what kings would do if they won a battle and so on, they would bring some of the subjects of their conquered kingdoms back into their own land. And they would make them serve in humiliating ways. These people were at their whim, at their disposal. And it was often the case that they would actually make their enemies their footstool. As a form of humiliation and punishment. Now this means that the people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who were hearing this sermon and realizing what they had done with Jesus and their rejection of him realized that they were now at the feet of the one that they had killed but who was now alive again. In other words, he couldn't be killed. He's not, never going to be defeated. Not, if you're his enemy, yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble at that. He didn't stay dead. He was alive. He was at God's right hand and at any moment would exercise his just, just judgment on them. And that was a terrifying reality for them. And I wonder again, is, that, is the prospect of judgment in our conversation with people? Do we let them know the results and the consequences of their unbelief? Is that what we talk about when we share the gospel with others? People should hear the bad news of their condition in order to understand how precious the good news is. And for those listening to Peter, for those listening to us, there is, there is hope. Peter has already said that when the Spirit comes, everyone, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a way to be saved. That's why we have a gospel to share and present. And that's Peter's answer in a nutshell. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus reigns. Now here's the question into the second point. What can we expect when that gospel is proclaimed by God's spirit-filled people? Sure, some will reject him, but as the spirit is working the world to convict the world of sin, we can see that when we talk to others about Jesus, people will feel, some will feel convicted of their sin and respond with repentance. That's the right response to the gospel. Repentance, the right response to the gospel, point two. We see this in their conviction of sin. In verse 37 you read, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. I think I've told this story before, but I love it. Uh, I once heard Tim Keller uh, preach and talk about this Welsh medieval prince called Llewellyn. One day Llewellyn went into the bedroom of his infant son to find the cot that his infant son had been lying in was overturned. And worse than that, there was, there was blood around the cot. Uh, his, his worst fears were, were, were realized when he turned to see the family dog, Gellert, walking into the room with blood all around his mouth. In blind fury, Llewellyn 
pulled out his sword and killed the dog. And just as Gellert, the dog, was falling limp, Llewellyn heard a cry from the next room. And it was the cry of his son. He burst through the door into the room to find his son lying there on the ground, unscathed, and a wolf lying beside him with its throat gashed. And Llewellyn then quickly realized that the blood that was dripping from Gellert's mouth was not the blood of his child, but the blood of the wolf. And when he realized that Gellert was not the child's attacker, but the child's savior, Llewellyn was cut to the heart. Now the people of Jerusalem had a certain view of Jesus, which many people in our city share. They hear about him, they hear what he wants them to become, they hear what he wants them to leave behind, they reject him. The people in that day had rejected Jesus, they had him slain. But on this day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon acts like that child's cry in the other room. And Peter, by sharing the gospel, helped them see that it was because of them that Jesus died. They had killed their saviour. Now there's no soft peddling of the gospel here, is there? Sometimes when it comes to us talking to others about Jesus, we can tiptoe around some of these issues. We think they sound weird. But Peter's not trying to make this easier to swallow. He's making sure it's understandable, but not trying to make it easier to swallow. He's not downplaying their guilt. It's not, you killed him, but don't worry, you didn't realize. It's none of that. No, in verse 22, Peter preached that Jesus lived, that God displayed his glory through him, and he adds, as you yourselves know. In verse 23, Peter preached Jesus died on the cross, and his damning indictment is, you did it. You did it. That's why we read in verse 37 that they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? This is what happens when you're really convicted. When you're cut to the heart, you cry out for help. Those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ tonight, haven't we done that? Coming to a realization of our sinfulness before him, the just judgment that he was rightly going to pour out on us if we did not call on Jesus' name to be saved. When we're cut to the heart, we cry out for help. Which helps us to see that when we share the gospel, we must help people see the consequences of their unbelief. We mustn't soft pedal this gospel, but with broken hearted, humble boldness, share the full gospel. Now, if we have the joy of having someone turn to us, having shared the gospel with them, to have the joy of having them turn around and say, what shall we do? Then take them to Acts chapter 2 verse 38. For it instructs us clearly, repent and be baptized. Repentance is, of course, an about turn. It's a U-turn. It's where, as the confession says, a person, out of a true sense of his sin and an understanding of the mercy of God offered in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God with the full intention to pursue a new obedience. A new obedience. Repent, turn from your sin to serve the true and living God and be baptized. So inwardly we repent and outwardly we demonstrate repentance through baptism. What better way to affirm our allegiance than to be baptized in the name of the one that we once rejected? Baptism, of course, provides that 
that key marker, that key, that key mark of obedience at the beginning of our Christian faith. As we remember the gospel and apply the gospel to ourselves through being immersed in water, buried beneath the surface and raised to new life in Jesus with our sins washed away. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, uh, and maybe you're even ready to become a believer, uh, Peter tells you exactly what to do. And I wonder if you're ready to do that. Cry out for help. Pray to God. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Be baptized. And what will you receive? What are the effects of believing the gospel? This is point three. It's, well, in a word, salvation. Salvation. The benefits of believing the gospel. We will find the forgiveness of sins. He wipes out the past. Now, our sins nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross. But by dying on the cross, those, those sins are washed away. The slate is wiped clean. And the psalmist says in Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. No, he gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. And it's an incredible picture. This, this, this forgiveness of the past and new life is a glorious thing. Don't ask me how, but one night, Catherine and I, ages ago, ended up watching a, uh, the TV channel More For. Oh dear, it must have been bad telly that night. And there was a program on called How the Other Half Live. And it was a heart-wrenching story. 27-year-old Sophia and her daughter Annie were living below the poverty line. Sophia had started a catering business and she was hoping to create a life for her with her daughter but their business went bust and left her with huge debts Sophia's filmed budgeting for the month ahead and it was just heartbreaking you know you saw her go well she was just budgeting for family leisure and you saw her write down £4.21 wow that's, that's less for a month than what I spend in Costa on one visit but then the program, of course, connects these people living in poverty in hard times with those living at the other end of the scale. And this is where a family comes in, a rich family, and they come in and they clear her debt. And it's an incredible scene where they say they hand her the check for the exact amount. They clear her debt. Sophia bursts into tears and sits in a stunned gaze as she says, when you've lived in this position... You've just got all this pressure. When this is all you've lived for for years and then suddenly it's gone, it's crazy, she said. Now I think that that illustrates something of the power of the gospel when God clears our spiritual debts. When we realize that because of our sin, how much trouble we're actually in, how much we owe, the, to have the past wiped away is, is incredible. Seems crazy. But this is what he does for us. Through forgiveness. Those sins that we have committed, those sins that weigh us down heavily, the guilt that we have, whether, as I said from the beginning, it's a big thing that we've done in the past that heaps up regrets. It's one of the first things we think about in the morning when we open our eyes. Or whether it's just this continuous disobedience, a lack of growth, a lack of love. 
whether it's constantly being angry and sinful towards the one we love in our house or broken relationships to have our sins forgiven and wiped away no longer held against us so that it's just as if we've never sinned is a glorious, glorious thing. Do you not agree? It's beautiful. Sophie's story didn't end there. Not only did they clear her debts, this wealthy family took her outside and they showed her this brand new little white van with a logo on the side for her new catering business and money in the pot and someone to come alongside and help they involved themselves in her life in order to give her new life Sophia said to them you've taken away our debts and now you provide us with a new sense of life and again that's exactly what we can expect when we come to Jesus in faith and repentance that's what we tell people when we share the good news about Jesus with them we receive this gift of the Holy Spirit Peter says he gives you new life and with the gift of the Holy Spirit comes a new family new joy a new love for God and others a new appetite for growth in the gospel becoming more and more like Jesus a new usefulness to serve your new family, the church, the people that God saves you into, and a new ambition to make his glory known to the ends of the earth by telling others. And the last thing, the promise of more, this call to mission. This promise of forgiveness and newness of life was not only offered to all who heard Peter preach, but he made sure that they knew it would be offered to all who would come after them. Not only could they find forgiveness, not only could they find the past wiped clean and a new sense of life, but their children could. In other words, not their own children, but the generations that would come after them. And all people everywhere would. In other words, this isn't just for those who are Jews, for that's who Peter's addressing here. This is for everyone. This is for the nations. All people, all generations, everywhere, every ethnic group need to hear this gospel and have this promise of forgiveness of sins and newness of life held out to them. And when you become a Christian, you're employed in that service. You have the joy of speaking to others leading them to the Lord Jesus Christ by sharing the gospel with them so when people cry out to God in repentance he promises to wipe out the past through the forgiveness of sin to adopt us as children through the gift of the spirit and to employ us in his service isn't that the most amazing grace did any one of us deserve that not at all God is so free in his gifts of grace. God is so loving and abundant with his mercy. And the people realized it on that day. Look with me at verse 40 and 41. Luke adds to Peter's sermon with many other words. He warned them and pleaded with them. There is another mark 
of how we share the gospel with others, warning and pleading. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's all going to pot. This life around you is no life at all. It will not last. Come to Jesus. Jesus who lived. Jesus who died. Jesus who rose. Jesus who reigns. And what do we read? Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. (laughs) The size of the church multiplied 26 times in one day with one sermon you're like well that's Pentecost isn't it is the spirit who lives in us any less powerful Uh, if we are true to the gospel message is it any different if we open up our mouths and proclaim is the spirit not at work anymore to convict the world of guilt sin and righteousness well he is so how will you answer the question what is the gospel will you be prepared to share it will you be prepared actually to introduce it to your conversations surely we must surely we can't faff about there are too many people who are lost And there's not enough time. Peter. You realize how Peter started off sharing the gospel, don't you? Someone accused him of being drunk. (laughs) You guys, you guys are just drunk. This event happens. They say, our explanation is, you guys are just drunk. And Peter says, no, 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 no. No, let me tell you what this is about. And he presents the gospel to them. So, Next time someone makes a comment towards you, maybe you want to think, no, about being drunk, that's a bad thing. But about, you know, how, figure out how do you work the conversation to the point when you can share the gospel with people. I find at times I can have a tendency to steer clear of it rather than to steer into it. But I'm becoming more and more convicted of the necessity of a broken-hearted boldness And not just believing the theology of atonement, but the necessity of an urgency in talking about that atonement with others. Do we share that? Do we share that together? We must, like Peter, plead with others. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And who knows what God will do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much that Jesus lived and walked this earth. That you, despite...